You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast on February the 26th, 2010. I'm David Payne. Estimates of HIV are just that, estimates. But in order to research the progression of the virus and the effectiveness of intervention strategies, those estimates have to be as accurate as possible. This week on BMJ.com, we've published new research looking at the prevalence of HIV in India, and Professor Prahad Jha joins us to explain the novel way in which they've measured their data. Also this week, as spending cuts are planned across public services and new treatments are released, the financial strain on the health service is increasing. One way in which some money can be saved is through disinvestment, that's stopping paying for some treatments that have been superseded or shown to be ineffective. Online this week, we've published an analysis article looking at the ways in which NICE, the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, could do just that. Peter Littlejohns, the Clinical and Public Health Director of NICE, joins us to talk about some of the plans. But before that, I'm joined by Annabelle Ferryman, BMJ News Editor, who's here with uh, her pick of the stories this week. Hello, Annabelle. Hello, David. What have you got for us this week? Well, um, there's a couple of very important stories that have been dominating the papers this week. One about um, the Parliamentary Select Committee on Science saying that homeopathy should no longer be available on the NHS. All right. And then similarly, um, there's a very big story that broke this morning, really, which is the report into the Mid-Staffordshire Hospital, which where there was a very high death rate. And there's been a report, an ongoing investigation into it to look at you know, what was the causes of things going wrong there. Yes. Um, we didn't manage to get anything into the printed journal about that because it came out after we went to press, but we've got a long story on the web. Excellent. Um, but for anybody who's opened their newspapers today, they will have also, you know, it is in the in the lay papers. Lay big press. story in the UK here, yeah, isn't it? it yes. is. Yes. So I thought I'd concentrate, though, on three stories that are more or less exclusive to the BMJ. Very good. The first is a story relating to a payment for GPs. And basically, Camden Primary Care Trust in London has published on its uh, website how much they pay to each of their GP practices. And what it revealed was that there are massive discrepancies in what GPs get paid. And they're not related, actually, to the deprivation or otherwise of their patients. But this seems to relate far more to just whether some GPs are good at playing the system or not. And there's a personal medical services contract and a general medical services contract. And one is much more lucrative than the other. And there's also just a whole mass of anomalies and quirks in the system. And um, the BMA GP leader admits to that and sort of says it's true that it is very quirky. And the previous contract was meant to sort of iron out these differences um but hasn't done so yes so anyway to find out more about that story go to bmj.com and uh, your second story today annabelle um well i've got two other stories that i thought i'd mention uh, both from abroad one is in the netherlands their parliament is going to debate the possibility of um, changing the law on assisted suicide to allow it to happen not just to someone who's terminally ill but to someone who just feels their life's complete wow uh, yes and i mean Holland is well known for being an interesting country on this because it is one of the few countries where the euthanasia is uh, legal under very, very circumscribed conditions. Yes. But here they are going to debate in Parliament the question of whether it might be available for people who are not actually terminally ill. Um, How's this news been greeted in the Netherlands, Annabelle? Well, um, that's interesting because a huge number of people have petitioned Parliament to... um, debated but the dutch medical associations are dead against it they do not feel that it's right right. and you know they do feel vulnerable people will be taken advantage of and so forth but 
They've got 80,000 people on a petition. Um, the group that's demanding it is or asking for it is one called Of One's Own Free Will. And they're just, you know, raising the whole topic. And I think it will be discussed in Parliament, but I don't know, yes. you know, how far it'll get. No. And of course, assisted suicide is in the news in the UK today, isn't it? Because Keir Starmer, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has issued new guidance. Do we Are we covering that story we too? We will be covering it. Yes, our legal correspondent, Claire Dyer, has been at the briefing. And we hope to have her story up today on the website. Excellent. OK, so your third story for us today. Our third story is uh, about Germany. There they have someone called the government's patient commissioner and he's come up with a suggestion that they should have a register of doctor's errors there um, which they haven't got up at the moment Mm. and it's interesting to me because in England we have got something very similar called the National Patient Safety Agency to which doctors hospital doctors have got to uh, report accidents and near misses it's considered to be very important to increase um, the safety record of um, the UK Though it's taking a little while to get off the ground because there is a resistance. Some hospitals report many, many more near misses and uh, accidents than others. Mm. But anyway, it is being opposed by the German Medical Association. So it's not clear what, you know, whether it'll happen. But something that's quite interesting that came out was that the German Medical Association is um, objecting to it partly because they have an, uh, an excellent system of arbitration for patients who complain about malpractice or errors. They can they go to these expert committees who take evidence and recommend what should be done uh, mm. when something's gone wrong. This is and apparently in ninety percent of cases, both sides do um, respect the decision of these arbitration committees. And so they're saying, look, we've got an excellent system for dealing with mistakes. Why do we need you know yes. uh, um, a register? Yes. But I suspect this will get ahead of steam, and you know I suspect there will be patient demands for it and I'd be surprised if they can resist it for a long time because it's just the pattern of things that are happening worldwide really. Yes it sounds like a case of watch this space and see it, how absolutely, that story comes out. Absolutely. Okay. Annabelle thank you very much for that. Thanks David. Now we turn to HIV in India. Duncan Jarvis talks to Prahad Jar about his research. So I'm joined now by Professor Prahad Jar from the University of Toronto in Canada. He's been looking at the prevalence of HIV in India. Prahad and his colleagues did a survey of a million homes in India to try and estimate the number of AIDS deaths and the HIV infection rate. Prahad, there's been various estimates of HIV prevalence by the World Bank and WHO, for example. How do the results of your study compare to those that were estimated before? Well, the earlier estimates were way off, and I think everyone is, um, has realised that, that the early projections for where the HIV epidemic in India would go were quite unrealistic. I mean, there were some suggestions made by the uh, CIA fact sheet from India that India might have 10 million people infected by uh, this year, 2010. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the estimates I was involved in in terms of projections um, when I was working at the World Bank were substantially off. Um, And... The WHO's estimate, the World Health Organization estimates, have actually varied tremendously. And they varied from 270,000 to 630,000 AIDS deaths, and between uh, 2 million to 6 million people infected with HIV. Now, that was all before the 2005-06 survey of HIV infection. And then our mortality survey of 1 million homes all over India. And those both point 
to something like maybe 1.4 to 1.6 million adults age 15 to 49 being HIV infected. Previous data collected in India has used HIV prevalence in pregnant women to extrapolate infection rates. How did you collect your data to get a more accurate estimate? People who die in India die at home. Is that different, let's say, if you die from HIV versus dying of a heart attack? Mm -hmm. And in fact, we found that um, more often than not, these are younger people that are dying from HIV. They mostly will go back to their houses to die. They won't um, die somewhere else. So... um, And because the nature of the survey meant that you're capturing the houses and surveying them continuously, you caught most of the people that were were likely to die of HIV. So I'm sure there are biases in our study, but I think they're reasonably small compared to the the more plausible estimate that we're able to get of how many people died from AIDS and how many infections that means for India. HIV is still stigmatized. How sure can you be that um, people were answering your surveys accurately and not hiding any symptoms? Well, surprisingly, the the issues around stigma and the like didn't seem to be as much of a problem as we had feared. In the study, we had about uh, close to 500 deaths that were just from AIDS alone. Mm -hmm. And of those, 85% of the families actually reported that the deceased person had a HIV test or was diagnosed as being positive with HIV. So, in fact, there was a lot more openness than one would suspect. Now, HIV can often be concentrated in a few high-risk groups. Mm -hmm. Were you able to investigate that kind of information from your data? No, not specifically, because these were uh, people who died in a nationally representative sample of homes. So whether the person who died was infected because they were a female sex worker or because they were a male client of a sex worker or they happened to be, unfortunately, the wife of a, pers- of a male that was infected by use of sex work, were that you- didn't seem to matter. We basically found um, that all of those deaths were assumed to occur back in, in the homes. Um, a large proportion of the deaths did occur in males, which is predictable based upon the numbers of HIV infections and the patterns of infections in India. And a large proportion of the deaths occurred in the southern states. These are the four high-prevalent states of Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, Maharashtra, Andhra Pradesh, and the two northeast states, Mizoram and uh, Manipur. Those states are where HIV is much more common than the rest of India. And that's, in fact, where we found a lot more of our HIV deaths. So does having this more accurate data help uh, the Indian government with prevention strategies or treatment strategies? Yes, I think it helps with both. Um, With prevention, it's pointed the way uh, to the fact that the strategies used in particularly the south of India... These are the high-prevalent states. Mm-hmm. Those strategies have chiefly involved trying to do condoms and education program for sex workers throughout those states. And they uh, have contributed to reduced HIV. So the main lesson learned from these analysis, well, if it's working in the south of India, heck, use it in the north. And then in terms of treatment, what our numbers 
show the absolute number of people who need antiretrovirals in India is more modest than had been estimated previously. Now, your research was looking specifically at India. But what does it mean for, say, Africa and the collection of data there? Yes, well, I think there's a couple of lessons there. One is uh, the need to really have serious investments in monitoring the epidemic. One of the best things the World Health Organization has done is to get in place worldwide the system of monitoring infections in pregnant women, you know, the so-called sentinel surveillance, where you can study the trends in the infections reliably. Mm-hmm. The analogy, I think, is it's like flying a plane, and you know if the plane is going down or pl- going up, but it doesn't tell you whether the plane is at 5,000 feet or 10,000 feet. Right. So that's been a very good thing, and those data are in place even in parts of Africa. But I think there's still a big gap in the mortality measurement side in Africa. Unlike in India, in Africa, we just have, well, only a handful of even small studies that actually measure how people die. And that, I think, has been a huge gap in global health. Our hope is that the lessons learned from the India work will spur governments and WHO and the donors to actually say, well, isn't this obvious that if you want to know whether the big rollout of antiretrovirals in Africa has had an impact on mortality, then measure AIDS mortality. Just get systems in place that measures AIDS mortality. Well, Prahat, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. And that research article is freely available on bmj.com. Now Sophie Cook, the clinical registrar at the BMJ, talks to Peter Littlejohns from NICE about potential disinvestment strategies. This week, the BMJ has published an analysis article by Hughes and Ferner, which looks at how the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence should work out which treatments should be stopped to free up money to pay for the new treatments that NICE says they must provide. Joining me in the studio is Peter Littlejohns, the clinical and public health director of NICE. So Peter, what role should doctors play in disinvestment? I think doctors and healthcare professionals are absolutely key for making this work. There has been a view, mainly by health economists, but also by politicians, that there are swathes of professionals who um, are busy doing inappropriate, ineffective practice. And all we needed to do was to stop that activity and, and the whole of the NHS would be more efficient. Uh, the more NICE has looked at this, and indeed other researchers, have shown that it's, there aren't those many interventions that you can just stop. What's important is looking at the appropriate level of, of, of activity and, and making sure that the right patients are getting the right treatment. And, and that is professional uh, expertise, professional understanding. And, and what NICE can do is to support that process. Um, so what we have is a whole portfolio of clinical, guideline prog- um, clinical guidelines. Uh, within those, we have a whole range of opportunities to disinvest from practice. Um, and what we need to do is to make that uh, easier for, for, for doctors to take forward. So looking towards the disinvestment, Hughes and Ferner's analysis mentions that you might start with expensive treatments and treatments for non-serious and non-life-threatening conditions. Can you give us some examples of this? What we do at NICE is, and, and what we have done recently, is we, to um, instruct our consideration panels. Those are panels that determine uh, and prioritise our work programme. 
And increasingly, we've asked them to look for opportunities for disinvestment uh, within the clinical responsibilities that they have. And so that's very specific to, to individual guidelines. Um, more recently, we've uh, looked at the appropriate use of statins. And, and in that circumstance, we've said that if the, the effectiveness is considered equivalent, then you should go for the, the, the cheapest option. Another issue that Hughes and Ferner pick up on is evergreening. They say that there are six medications which have cost the NHS something between 134 and £369 million. These new formulations aren't part of NICE's remit at the moment. Do you think they should be? Well, well, NICE doesn't... Uh, I, they're not totally excluded from our remit. Um, and within the context of our clinical guidelines, if these drugs are, are, are marketed and being used then there's no reason why our clinical guideline programme uh, can't assess the added value to the NHS of these drugs and, and make a decision uh, on, on whether they're worth uh, use within the local community or not. The decisions made by NICE are often controversial and stopping the funding of treatments that patients are already on is bound to be more controversial than starting treatments for new ones. How are you planning to do this? Certainly when NICE makes a recommendation that, that an intervention, a drug, shouldn't be used in the NHS, we do say that those patients who are currently on that treatment should continue. Um, but I think the, the, the essence of your question is when we actually say that a, a practice that has been uh, the norm for many years, uh, we feel should be stopped, um, that that's, that's causes uh, considerable anxiety and, and, and controversy. But I think the, the basic principles are the same. We, we need to make clear to both professionals and patients what the evidence base is for making those decisions. And when we make those decisions, we need to put the, the draft decision out for consultation so that they uh, have a say, be it a professional or a patient, in, in commenting on that. Um, but, but ultimately, it, it's about uh, agreeing that, that the NHS is right to prioritise healthcare and that the only way we're going to get a fair and equitable health service for the whole of the country is that those decisions are going to have to be made. What do you think the timescale for potential disinvestment in the NHS is? Um, obviously over the next few years what uh, primary care trusts will be looking at is actually s saving money. Um, a lot of what NICE will offer is improvement in, in cost effectiveness, improvement in efficiency. Um, but not necessarily in, in straight cost savings that can then be um, identified. We feel that probably the, the biggest potential savings are in service provision, service reconfiguration, rather than individual professional activity. Um, so uh, we've put in quite a lot of effort into expanding our commissioning guides. So. Uh, we have groups looking at our clinical guidelines, looking at our appraisals and putting it together into advice to commissioners on how best to commission services. Um, and we're expanding that programme to cover a whole range of, of new areas. And over what time period are you expanding that? Um, well, the, the, this is happening. Uh, what we've done is we've consolidated what we've done so far and uh, that, that is now available on our website. Uh, and these programmes will be rolled out over the next year. Could you envisage the UK adopting a similar strategy to, say, New Zealand, where there's an absolute capping on drug spending and new drugs can only be introduced when funding for existing drugs is stopped? Um, I think our perspective is that NICE is looking at the whole of the healthcare system through our public health guidance, our guideline programme and 
uh, our technology appraisals. So to to cap one element of that probably is not the way forward. What we need to do is to look at cost effectiveness of all the services and and, and bring that uh, bring those those concepts together. And do you think there are any mechanisms used in other countries that Nice could adapt to the UK? Um, each individual country has its own culture and, and its own approach. Um, we work uh, very closely with a number of other agencies in other countries, sharing methodology, uh, but particularly with the with the French and the Germans. Uh, but we also have uh, increasing uh, interactions with, with, with American and Canadian colleagues. Um, so we're always looking at ways of Im- improving our systems and our methodologies. I think the big issue, though, has to be around the evidence base. Um, we're, we're all searching the same, the same evidence base. We're, we're collating it and distilling it. So, so having international mechanisms where we can share that and, and use it, it'd be very important. Peter, thanks for joining us. And we'll have more in the BMJ about disinvestment in the near future. So keep an eye out for that. So that's all for this week. We'll be back next week with the latest research and news from the world of medicine. Join us then. Thank you. Goodbye. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.